Sarcoma Insight. Sarcoma Insight, this is our destination for education for both benign and malignant tumors. Welcome to this episode of Sarcoma Insight. We are here with a special guest today. Before we go further, we always like to touch on our previous topics. So in the last couple episodes, we've been working around nerves. We uh, covered the benign peripheral Noshi tumors, as well as the malignant peripheral Noshi tumors. And now we'll be moving further on with nerves and discussing the spine. Our guest today is none other than Dr. Ahmed Aoud. Dr. Aoud is a sarcoma and spine surgeon, as well as an engineer and an all-around amazing individual. He is currently an assistant professor for orthopedics and engineering at the prestigious McGill University in Montreal, Quebec. He's an avid researcher and clinician, and he completed his residency at McGill University as well as his fellowship at the University of Calgary for Spine at the famous University of Toronto, which we've now had uh, numerous members on this podcast for his oncology training. Most importantly, he is a friend of the podcast. How are you doing today, Dr. Aoud? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Dr. Ibe. And Elise, how are you? <laughs> I'm great. Enjoying the, the warm weather. Oh, it's warm. Is it finally warm in Seattle? Uh, it was for a weekend. I'm just imagining it's going to stay that way. Uh, <laughs> it's a little better. overcast today. Peak of the future to come, I hope. <laughs> uh, how about you, Dr. Aoud? How are things up in McGill? Good. It's great. We got some sun too, so <laughs> right now. being up north. Usually, you're in the sunniest place of all of us. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, right. it's 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 been hot. It's been hot. It's been <laughs> hot and humid. It's amazing. Maybe not so great for the operating room because it gets really hot in there. But uh, overall, it's good. All right, at least you want to get us started. Sure. Yeah. So we're really excited to have. Um, Dr. Aude on as a guest today. It's uh, really rare for for there to be uh, individuals who are trained in different subspecialties. And so having someone who's an expert in not only sarcomas in general, but sarcomas that involve the spine um, and other spine tumors that we'll see, which include metastatic disease. But so we're really excited to have you on as an expert today to share your thoughts and your wisdom. So on that note, can you tell us a little bit more about what that means? What's What are the basics of spine tumor surgery? What does it mean to describe a tumor of the spine as a primary tumor versus as a metastatic or secondary tumor? Well, first of all, thanks for having me again. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk about this. And, you know, it is, uh, it is fascinating how much you learn from each of the subspecialties and the things you uh, kind of put together to kind of formulate your own algorithm in, in uh, working these things up and treating these patients with these complex problems. Uh, but to answer your first question, uh, it's a very broad question and it's very, uh, it's very important to differentiate between metastatic and primary disease because as you know, the treatment, it drastically changes. You know, For a primary disease, your goal is to cure the patient, remove the tumor on block, Whereas in most of the time in metastatic disease, uh, the role is to stabilize the spine, improve neurological function, and hopefully improve quality of life for your patient. So big difference in terms of the way we uh, work things up and, and, and the way we want to treat these patients. So I think, you know, number one thing is like in all uh, tumor surgery, uh, diagnosis is key. 
uh, and uh, workup is uh, crucial in order to provide the appropriate treatment. So whenever you see a patient with a solitary lesion to the spine, you should always consider primary tumors as your number one diagnosis that you want to eliminate because the last thing you want to do is operate thinking it's a metastatic disease and it turns out to be a primary tumor. Uh, so that's my, my number one thing I would tell people is that you need to really work up these patients, take the time, even though sometimes uh, they come in in a very urgent situation with neurological compromise uh, without any uh, known diagnosis, it's very important to do the appropriate workup. So I always say, you know, anyone coming into the emergency with neurological deficit, obviously we want to get them to the operating room to, to help them recover that as much as possible. But uh, we, we need to make sure we're dealing with the right thing. So I would break it up into patient age to start with. So if you're, if you're seeing a patient that's younger in age, so 18 years or younger, or even 30 and younger, you, you need to rule out primary uh, spine tumors. Now, this, this spectrum goes from multiple myeloma all the way up to, you know, uh, osteosarcoma. There's also benign uh, aggressive tumors that we need to consider, such as GCT, ABC, eosinophilic granuloma, for example, in a younger patient. So all those things need to kind of go through your head pretty quick, especially if they're coming in in an urgent situation, which is the, unfortunately, most of the time, uh, the way that these patients present. All right. Um, Dr. Awood, if I was, so just to summarize for some of the listeners, so the primary tumor, you're more concerned about if somebody is present with what you call a solitary uh, mass or solitary lesion. So this means that there is the tumor is only affecting sort of one area of the spine. Is that correct? Yeah, so that's correct. So if you see a patient with, when we talk about solitary, it doesn't mean one vertebrae, but it means one conglomerate, so one area where the tumor is growing within the entire spine. And one, one thing to be cautious of is most of the time when patients present in the emergency room, they will get only a, a lumbar spine MRI or a thoracic spine MRI, and they won't get a full spine MRI. So that's the number one thing, or a full spine CT scan if it's faster at your institution. I always say if you ever see a patient with a, a, a vertebral lesion or a spinal lesion to get the entire spine image and in the, in the fastest period of time if they have a neurological uh, deficit. Most of the time, that means a CT scan. But if, if it does look like they only have that one lesion in one area of the spine, then that should be triggered in your, in your head as being a possible primary spine tumor. And then I would, add, I would add, you know, that the workup for these things should include ruling out any other primary uh, source so even though you only have one lesion in the spine, doesn't mean you don't have any other lesion somewhere else, such as breast, prostate, renal cell carcinoma are things that really need to be eliminated. So a CT chest abdo pelvis, is a, if a patient's above uh, a certain age group, should always be done. Um, can you tell us about, and you might have touched on this already, who is more likely to be diagnosed with 
these primary spine tumors? Or another way to say this is uh, how common are they? And this is if we're looking at benign tumors versus malignant tumors. Yeah, so they, they tend to come in, in uh, different age groups, different kind of diagnosis should uh, cross your mind. Uh, I would tell you just to make things a little simpler for the audience, if anything is in the anterior spine, think more malignant. Uh, in the posterior spine, uh, it still can be some malignant uh, form of metastatic disease, but most of the time, it, it tends to be a little bit less aggressive. Uh, and again, the features on imaging really dictate uh, what kind of tumor you're you're kind of anticipating. Uh, in the the things that you want to kind of consider also is the age group of patients at presentation. If they're younger, then there's things that should come into your mind. Uh, for example, a patient that is younger than 18 years of age with vertebra plana, uh, you know, can be an infection, but it can also be a isonophenic granuloma. Whereas someone uh, a little bit older with a lesion uh, that looks like uh, uh, jail bars on the MRI and has some punctate calcifications on the CT scan can be a hemangioma, for instance. So each each case is it's difficult to kind of summarize in, in general, but you want to really I think the the key goal here is to work up the patient appropriately to have a to narrow down that that broad spectrum and then decide on uh, what type of treatment needs to be done. Thanks, and um, that is a really good description of kind of the overall thought process. Um, and we of course appreciate and know that there's more minutia to it for each patient, but um, that's a good overview. And I think for our listeners, we'll try to include a picture um, in the link, uh, but so just the difference between the anterior and posterior part of the spine. So the anterior typically refers to the bigger oval uh, area of the spine that you would see in a picture in a cross section um, where most of the weight is distributed and the anterior, the posterior part is the long thin processes that come off the back that you can even feel on the back of a patient's um, spine. So that's, that's, we use that location as a, one of the things to help us uh, narrow down the differential as you were describing, but yeah, we'll try to include a picture to make that um, easier yeah, for yeah, yeah. our listeners to understand. Absolutely. But, great. And so kind of along the same line, do you use the location within the spine as another way to help you narrow down the differential? Where where in the spine do you commonly see these tumors occur? More cervical, thoracic, lumbar, or sacral, if we include that in the spine. Um, did, does that help you in terms of uh, figuring out what this lesion yeah. might be? That's a great point. Absolutely. So even the location, so higher up near your neck, cervical spine, uh, lower down near your rib cage, thoracic spine, or lower down, even lower down the lumbar spine or sacrum and pelvis area really do dictate what type of tumor it is. Um, front back also, like we just mentioned, uh, but for, for example, you know, a chordoma is a type of uh, sarcoma that typically uh, happens at the bottom or the top of the spine. So whenever you have something up in C1-2, so near the head area, the head-neck junction, or something lower down in the sacrum, 
then that, that's the kind of diagnosis you're trying to eliminate. Uh, again, there's obvious features that we do see on the MRI, CT scan, et cetera, that help us as well. Uh, I would tell you also the history of patients is very important now. So a patient that's had radiation to the spine or near the spine or near the pelvis, more and more do we see tumors arising uh, that are considered primary uh, bone tumors that are radiation-induced. For example, radiation-induced osteosarcoma. So uh, those are things also that you need to really clarify when you see uh, patients to give you a better idea of what, what the diagnosis can be. Um, thank you for that, uh, Dr. Awood. And along the lines of that, uh, you talked about patients showing up with severe neurologic compromise. Do all patients present like that? How do how do most, most of the patient presents when you see them? And can some of these tumors of the spine be asymptomatic? Yeah, so that's a great question. So typically, you know, uh, neurologic compromise actually occurs more in metastatic disease because that, that patients tend to have uh, an idea that they have a cancer and it tends to, to progress a little bit uh, faster. For primary uh, spine tumors, most of the time patients present with back pain. Okay? And it could be simple back pain. I've seen patients pre present with sciatica, for example. Uh, or being diagnosed with sciatica, their spine being imaged, and then they turn out to have a, a chondrosarcoma in the femur. So again, the physical exam and questionnaire is really important. And I think a thorough exam and physical and questionnaire is of utmost importance. And uh, for the spine itself, pain tends to be the main uh, kind of presenting factor. And the crucial things to, to kind of ask patients is night pain. Night pain, weight loss, systemic signs, uh, such as loss of appetite, et cetera, can, uh, can tune you in on something a little bit more serious than just, uh, for example, someone who has a disc herniation. You know? So it's very important to ask the right questions. Uh, and typically, you know, when, when neurology or neurological compromise occurs, uh, the tumor has progressed significantly uh, that it becomes uh, more urgent in nature. I think that's um, that's really important to understand in terms of the acuity of how these patients come in. And it can definitely change in terms of what part of the workup needs to be completed in advance and kind of what information you need. And you're, it's, it's balancing a lot of things. And so that can be a really challenging situation. Um, so in terms of some of the diagnostic workup that you might do? What are some of the imaging studies you would go through, like things you do for every patient and then things that you reserve for specific situations, such as different advanced imaging studies? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, that again is <laughs> a topic in itself, but uh, in, in uh, let's let, to simplify things, I always say, you know, start with the easy access stuff, get x-rays, Okay, x-rays, although uh, they're used less often, actually give you a lot more information than people think. An x-ray is normally done with a patient standing, whereas a CT scan and MRI, the patient's lying down. So just that dynamic aspect of that imaging becomes very important, loading the spine and seeing what happens. 
there are certain features that you can see on a plain x-ray, such as, uh, you know, bulging into the soft tissue. That's not always obvious, but also uh, uh, bony destruction, bony reaction, et cetera, that you can see on a simple x-ray. Um, the other things that I think are becoming pretty standard of care is a CT scan. Again, based on the patient's age, I think in almost in all situations, I would ask for a CT chest abdo pelvis. At the same time, I'll be looking at the spine, but also looking for satellite lesions or any other primary source. Uh, and then uh, apart from the uh, CT scan, we can add an MRI. And an MRI of the to total spine gives you a better idea of the neural elements of the nerves, the spinal cord, et cetera. Uh, that can be uh, at risk with these lesions, especially if they're bulging out. They also give you an idea of the soft tissue extension of these uh, tumors. So if I break it down, let's, let's go back one step. Uh, I would call it, uh, I guess, you want to have uh, local staging with imaging, okay? Uh, which means where the mass is itself, you need to get the appropriate imaging. So an MRI and CT scan. Uh, and an x-ray, and then you want to have systemic staging, which would include, uh, for example, a total spine MRI, CT chest, abdo, pelvis. And in our center at McGill, we're very, uh, we're very aggressive with PET scans. Uh, we've shown that PET scans have uh, helped us de detect metastasis that would have been missed, especially lymph nodes, et cetera. So we, we tend to get those on a routine basis. And uh, obviously a biopsy is uh, very crucial for the diagnosis. And in certain uh, rare tumors such as myxoid liposarcoma, our center again is, uh, has been a world leader in showing that a total body MRI would be required for those patients as they tend to metastasize outside the chest. For, uh, for example, for sarcoma, which is the number one site you want to eliminate. So again, a CT chest, Abdo pelvis, not only to uh, detect if there's other uh, sites to worry about, but also to rule out any metastatic disease and staging. Dr. Awood, you talked about the biopsy here. And for a lot of our, our listeners, they're very familiar with the staging process and knowing that you need to get a sample to get a diagnosis as well as to start to get an idea of the grade of the tumor. What is your recommended uh, method of biopsy for the spine tumors? Is it primarily done by the interventional radiologist? Are there periods that you have to do these open? Um, are there lesions that you can tell exactly what it is on imaging that don't require biopsy? So those, are those three questions. Okay, so uh, very good questions also. Again, uh, depends on the situation. But in general, I would say... I prefer a needle biopsy in all cases, okay, because it's less invasive, gets you uh, straight to the money if you want, uh, and then you can uh, base the treatment uh, on that. What I caution, though, with these needle biopsies is that an orthopedic oncologist uh, does review the intended biopsy tract, okay, because uh, there are multiple ways to, to uh, biopsy the spine. You could go from the front, from the side, transpedicular, for example, all these different techniques. And in our center, I actually draw out 
the biopsy track because uh, my surgical plan or planned resection will need to remove that biopsy track to be extra cautious for curative purposes. So why do we do that is because that tract where you push the needle through the soft tissue can be a source of small microscopic cells actually seeding the muscle and that needs to be resected with the tumor. Now, that being said, in your second part of the question, do you ever do an open biopsy? Yes, absolutely. If a patient is coming in with neurologic compromise, for example, and I have to go to the OR uh, no matter what to decompress their spinal cord, then I'll call the pathologist in, do an open frozen section, determine what the tumor is, and then have my plan A, B, C, D ready to be able to do either an interrelational, so removing the tumor within itself, piece by piece, or an, uh, an oncological wide resection as much as possible uh, near the spinal cord becomes very tricky and requires uh, a multidisciplinary team, but also a center that allows that treatment. So in those rare cases, I will do an open biopsy. And now the last part of your question, can you... Uh, based on imaging, sometimes diagnose a uh, tumor. The first thing that comes to my mind is chondrosarcoma as a very uh, common features on imaging and 99.9% .9 accuracy with just imaging itself. But I think even in those cases, I still get a needle biopsy to prove that there is cartilage in the tumor before I do a big resection. So for me, a biopsy is always warranted what what if the uh, primary tumor is a benign one so i know you you mentioned jail bar earlier which is what the hemangiomas look like or a corduroy pattern uh, on the hemangiomas would would you still need to biopsy any hemangiomas or could you make the diagnosis based on imaging and treatment um, no that's main for, mainly for malignant uh, so for for the benign ones, that's a good point. Uh, the benign tumors, if they're pretty obvious on imaging, I will not biopsy, but I will get repeat imaging with the interval of time, uh, for example, six months repeat MRI, just to ensure that nothing grows or uh, gets worse. So I'll still, I'll still have a close follow-up because, you know, Different to other parts of the body, the spine uh, is a little bit more complex because of all the uh, neuro the spinal cord, nerves, uh, vessels in the proximity, et cetera. Perfect. That's a really good summary of kind of a lot of the different options. It's a good bird's eye view of how to approach these patients. And so kind of along the same lines, you've been using some of this terminology already throughout but in terms of the treatment options for patients with spinal tumors, so can you describe that difference between an interlesional treatment a bit more and an on-block resection and the stabilization may look like? Of course, we know, again, there's a lot of minutia to this depending on the location and the tumor type, but um, just so our listeners understand what that means and how big of a procedure that could be, for example, with an on-block resection. Yeah, so I, I would tell you, you know, the way I would break it down is the following. I think there's there's tumors that can be resected uh, without destabilizing the spine and others that do destabilize the spine. So if you think about your spine as your main kind of structural asset for your body, 
if you uh, remove part of that structure, obviously the, the body won't be able to stand up and function mechanically like it, it needs to. So that's one aspect of uh, tumor uh, resection and reconstruction that needs to be uh, thought of in the back of your mind. And in spine, there's two ways of stabilizing the spine, again, from the back or from the front, <laughs> to make it simplified. But from the back, it's uh, basically placing screws within the pedicles, which are small channels of bone, bone uh, right beside crucial structures, such as a spinal cord, uh, the nerves that give you your motion in your legs, arms, hands, and feet. Uh, and then rods that connect those screws together to give you stabilization in the back. Now, every time you take out anything in the front of the spine, then uh, typically you need to reconstruct that uh, front of the spine, which we call the anterior column. Uh, and that could be done in a variety of ways. It could be done with cages that are synthetically made. We can use cadaveric bone that we uh, replace uh, your resected bone with, or we can actually remove bone from other parts of your body, iliac crest, vascular fibula. Uh, those are kind of the type of bony reconstructions we do. So that's just after the tumor resection in a nutshell. For the resection itself, it becomes even more complicated and you really need to look at this imaging. Like when I do one of these cases, I look at the imaging over two weeks. I get all the 3D reconstruction. I might even get 3D models uh, printed so I can really visualize what I need to do in surgery, especially if we're trying to do this in an en bloc fashion. An en bloc, just uh, for simple terms, is removing the tumor with normal tissue all around in one piece. And if you can imagine something affecting your spine means that there are solid organs in front of the spine and there's the spinal cord and nerves in the back. Okay, so uh, you have to figure out how to move these vital structures without causing any damage and remove the tumor in one piece. And that typically needs more than just the spine surgeon oncology surgeon, but it needs a, the vascular surgeon, thoracic surgeons at some points, general surgeons at other points, ear, nose, throat surgeons at other, at other locations. So it's a team effort to remove these tumors and, and you require a good communication between everyone and a really good plan and recipe. So uh, th that's in a nutshell. Uh, for, for the listeners out there, obviously, if you have a tumor in your neck, or your thoracic spine, then that is around the spinal cord. And it becomes a little bit more tricky since the all the nerves are in one solid aspect within the spinal cord. As soon as you get below L2, then you're at what we call the cauda equina or the the terminal end of the spinal cord. And then your nerves are kind of floating in. I always describe it as a bag of milk, uh, and there's basically uh, fascicles of nerves like your hair within that bag of milk that can be moved around a little bit more vigorously than the spinal cord without causing damage. So it makes it a little easier uh, as you go lower down. 
So um, if I might interject for a brief second, I think we've uh, started this process uh, on the podcast trying to uh, identify members of the sarcoma team. And I think you did a good job of starting to list a bunch of people who would be involved in providing care for patients, especially with something like the spine. And it's very important because the spine uh, is a very tightly enclosed area. And we spend a lot of time talking about the importance of the proximity of a tumor to neurovascular structures. And it seems like the spine itself is wrought with uh, neurovascular structures, whether it be the spinal cords, the different levels that are given up uh, nerves, right? And then the aorta and the, the, um, <clears throat> and the vena cava on the other side, et cetera. What are you speaking to patients about in terms of potential deficits with these with the surgeries, if at all? Yeah, so always a tough kind of discussion to have. Uh, but for primary, this is again for primary tumors, which we're trying to remove on block in one piece. Uh, it's a very long discussion. I allow patients to think about it, come back and discuss with me again, because it's quite... Uh, invasive from a surgical standpoint and can be very detrimental for a patient. But again, based on location, we know from our medical knowledge what type of deficits and uh, what type of problems can arise. Uh, if I'm planning to resect uh, a tumor, uh, sometimes with part of the spinal cord, I'll have an idea of what type of deficit, worst come scenario or uh, best outcome scenario, and I, I detail both, uh, because even in the best outcome scenario, sometimes you do have some deficits that you anticipate. Okay, for example, when I need to remove a tumor with a complete nerve or part of the spinal cord, I know that the patient will have some deficits. Uh, our goal, obviously, is to always, one, I always say, one, save patient's life and to restore as much function as possible. Uh, but the, the ultimate goal is to, pay, uh, to save someone's life. Because if someone is uh, has all his anatomy to be functional, but dead doesn't really, doesn't really help, right? So uh, all those discussions are really tough, but they need to uh, be done. So I always present the good and the bad outcomes and uh, hopefully we get the good outcomes more than the bad. <laughs> That's what we uh, aim for. But again, if we're doing intralesional resection, uh, then it becomes easier because you can stay within the bony channel most of the time. You have less uh, risk to these uh, structures and you have less reconstruction needed uh, when that happens. Well, that was great. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, an academy or AOS uh review article coming up on this topic from you. So uh, you describe everything really well. So wonderful. And I think our last question, just to sum it up, and we'll of course leave it open-ended if you have any other thoughts, but um, in terms of surveillance after you've treated someone for either a benign or malignant tumor, what are you doing in terms of imaging? How often are you seeing these patients in, in general? Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's a good question. For benign I can be more relaxed <laughs> and I will do uh, repeat MRIs most of the time. 
and if I did any sort of reconstruction, then I, I tend to see them every three months uh, for the first year, uh, then uh, every six months for the second year, and then yearly thereafter, just for the uh, overall construct. But again, it depends on how extensive it is. I may space that out quite a bit if it was a smaller construct that I'm not less worried about and get it closer if it's a construct that uh, required a lot of a lot more mechanics if you want um, for anything uh, malignant so whether metastatic uh, or uh, primary bone tumor I like to keep it uh, close with routine x-rays again for the construct the hardware itself uh, but also for surveillance so if it's a if it's a type of uh, primary tumor then I'm I want to rule out any metastasis so again questionable whether this is a little aggressive but our center we do get CT scans of the three months um, the radiation doses are much smaller now with the new CT scan uh, units so we tend to do that over just standard x-rays um, but you can argue that just standard x-rays to rule out metastasis to the chest is something to do and then the reconstruction, again, if it's complex, I will tend to get an MRI and a CT scan every six months about, just to keep an eye on local recurrence. Uh, and again, based on the grade, that may vary. If something is very aggressive, I'll be more aggressive in my follow-ups. If something is less aggressive or smaller in uh, size, then I may space that out even uh, further. Uh, we are actually writing up a paper for that surveillance uh, kind of algorithm, looking at all our retrospective data that should be coming out soon, something uh, similar along the lines that Toronto did. Uh, and we're basing our follow-ups based on that for sarcoma. Uh, metastatic disease, I try to follow the medical oncologist's kind of routine appointments because you know these patients already have so much on their shoulders they come to the hospital so often that i try to uh, time it with the medical oncology visits so uh, they don't have too much burden of uh, follow-up that's great um yeah and i think we uh, probably easy and i do a something similar in terms of our practice for the more extremity tumors as well in terms of the surveillance but we're looking forward to that paper. We'll definitely alert our listeners when that's available as well. Um, but great. Any other last points? I know that we're planning to have you back to speak with you for another episode to talk a little bit more about spine tumors. We've already covered a lot in today's episode. Any other thoughts for our listeners at this moment? Yeah, I think, you know, the only thing I would say I would cautious, I would caution especially my fellow spine surgeons is take the time to get the right diagnosis. Sometimes the situation makes it very difficult. There's a, there's a case I, I have in mind uh, where a patient came into the ER actually paralyzed uh, zeros in bilateral lower extremity. And the surgeon that was on call actually looked at the images and was worried that it was a sarcoma and called me up even though I wasn't on call. We looked at the imaging and I came into the OR, we did a frozen section and it was a solitary fibrous tumor and we were ready to take this out on block in a very emergent fashion and we did that and the patient's still alive walking today. So I think if, 
if that surgeon had rushed into just operating, freeing up the nerves, sometimes you have no choice. But when you do have a little bit of time and you have the right people around you, call them up, do the appropriate <laughs> investigations, and you can have uh, great outcomes, uh, even though it's uh, pretty challenging. So I, I think that's the, the word of caution is don't put the foot on the accelerator too quick. Think about it a little bit before uh, you act. Yeah, of course, in that emergent situation, you know, you're still trying to expedite that work up as much as possible. But I know it can be a little anxiety inducing for patients as well to be going through that process of getting to an answer. And I, I, I think I've mentioned this on another episode, but I always like to say, you know, we're in the information gathering stage. We need to know what we're treating before we treat it. And I think that helps them kind of understand that we're working as hard as we can to get to an answer, but that's important before we, we don't want to make a wrong move because um, that can really change what the options we have going forward. But yeah, I think that's a, a that's a really good example of why you want to make good friends and keep them <laughs> to be able to call them up in those situations as well. Absolutely. And that brings us to our finale period where we discuss some salient points from the discussion with Dr. Awood today. I think uh, I think we've definitely learned that uh, primary bone tumors, they arise from the spine itself. They're not coming from elsewhere. That would be a secondary or metastatic tumor. And the thing that we note on these are that the tumor is usually located in a solitary area. Uh, and that's really one thing that allows us to be able to define those and separate them from more secondary metastatic lesions. At least you have any salient points? Yeah, I think um, Dr. Aoud obviously did a really great job summarizing things for us today. Um, and so in terms of determining the differential diagnosis, when we see a new lesion in the spine, we're thinking about a primary bone tumor that both the patient's age and the location within the spine, either the front or the back, anterior or posterior, or the top or bottom or in the middle, um, can all be useful for building that differential. And then you discuss the different surgical options available that primary tumors in some situations, benign in particular, may be able to be treated with intralesional resection um, or treatment where you're getting into the tumor cavity itself or on block resection where you're removing it in one piece without ever getting into the tumor. Um, and that's based on the diagnosis. But great. I think that was a um, really great discussion today. And we look forward to being able to talk with you a little bit more for your expertise on spine tumors. Yes, uh, absolutely. And I will finish by saying it is important to note that every patient's case is unique and treatment for each diagnosis depends on discussion with your team of physicians. Uh, if you would like more information, please feel free to check out the articles that are added to the episode description. Uh, and if you enjoyed the episode, do not hesitate to hit subscribe as well as follow us on Instagram. That brings us to a close uh, of this episode. We'll look forward to our next episode on metastatic spine tumors. Sarcoma Insight.